Father, you are the one true God who made us and redeemed us through your Son. So help us now to sit humbly under your foot, to hear what you have to say, and by your Spirit, help us to take it to heart that we may never succumb to temptation or fall into idolatry. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, can Christians fall away? Can Christians fall away? Now, it's a theological question that Christians often ask as they read the Bible. And the reason we ask it is because we know that the Bible is full of promises that God is faithful, like we read in this passage, that he keeps his promises and perseveres his people to the end. And yet at the same time, we know that the Bible is full of warnings, again like this in this passage, that we might fall away. And we can all think of people who used to be in church, and perhaps even were leaders in church, but have since turned away from Christ. I know people like that, and we're in a former church, a, a, a leader, serving as a Sunday school teacher, was a leader in the congregation, and it seemed like very much out of the blue, uh, started dating a non-believer, non left the church, and to my knowledge, hasn't, hasn't returned. And so we ask the question, can Christians fall away? But this is not just an intellectual question so that we can work out whether we are Calvinists or Arminians. This is a deeply personal question because it affects our own assurance of salvation. And we certainly don't want to be among those who fall away and give up the Christian faith. That would be a disaster. So today's passage is an important one and I think also a scary one. I, I don't know how you felt as I read it. Because it addresses this question directly. We're warned to flee idolatry, to resist temptation, so that we don't fall away and come under the judgment of God. Instead, we're encouraged to persevere in Christ and give our wholehearted worship to Him. Well, we've seen over the past few weeks that Paul has been addressing an issue that the Corinthians have written to him about in a letter, and that's the issue of food sacrifice to idols. And some in the congregation thought it was okay to eat because, after all, idols have no real existence, and so there's nothing inherently wrong with eating this food. But others who had a weak conscience because of their former association uh, with idols felt that eating this food was wrong, uh, because they were participating in idol worship, and the church was therefore divided over this issue. And the big point Paul has been making in chapters 8 to 10 is that the gospel teaches us to serve others and not just think about ourselves. Following Jesus means giving up our rights and our freedoms for the sake of the gospel. And so although there's nothing inherently wrong with eating this food, it's unloving to stumble our weak brother or sister encouraging them by our actions to do something that they think is wrong. And in chapter 9, we see Paul's personal example, uh, how he as the apostle preaches the gospel. He has every right to receive material support in return for his gospel preaching, but he willingly gave up that right so that it might not hinder the gospel. He wanted it to be true, 
he wanted it to be seen that he was preaching the gospel because it was true and not just because he wanted to get some personal benefit out of it. And Paul was willing not just to give up payment for his gospel preaching, but he ended towards chapter 9 saying he was willing to be all things to all people that he might save some. He was willing to live like a Jew to reach Jews. He was willing to live like a Gentile to reach Gentiles. He was willing to sacrifice his freedoms so that others would hear the gospel and they would be saved. But as we come now to chapter 9, verse 24, we come to a turn in the argument. Because although idols are nothing, and therefore food sacrificed to idols is nothing either, we mustn't become too complacent with idolatry. But there is a real danger as Christians that we won't make it to the finish line, that we'll fall into temptation and miss out on our eternal prize. Because after preaching the gospel to other people, we stop listening to the gospel ourselves, and we fall into sin, and we fall away from Christ. And so the first point this morning, discipline yourself so that you get the prize. Discipline yourself so that you get the prize. Verse 24 says this, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. The Corinthians would have been well acquainted with these kind of races. The Isthmian Games, I'm not sure if I said that correctly, uh, it was a major Greek athletics competition. It was held just nearby, down the road there. Now, Paul doesn't mean here that as Christians we're competing with one another. So, you know, the most, you know, godly, enthusiastic Christians, they get the prize, they get to go to heaven, and the others, well, sorry about that, you miss out. Um, what he means is that it's essential, like an athlete, we need to keep our goal, and we need to keep at it to the end, till we reach the finish line. Uh, earlier this year, I believe we had the Winter Olympic Games. Last year, a couple of years ago, the Summer Olympic Games. How do you win a gold medal at the Olympics? Well, through all the hours of training, you need to remember your goal. You're doing all this because you want to have that gold medal around your neck. And so you're intensely disciplined and self-controlled. You know, you're waking up all hours of the morning, you're, you're, you're working hard all day, intense training regime, watching your diet, all the rest, that you can reach that goal, that you can stand on the podium with the medal. And the lesson is this, discipline and self-control now leads to a prize at the end. We see that in verse 25. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we, an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly, I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So Paul's point here is that just as an athlete is, is disciplined in their training, uh, so that they can win the prize at the end, the gold medal or the, the, the victor's wreath, whatever it may be. So we, as Christians, must discipline ourselves, exercising self-control in all things, working hard to live a godly life, so that we too will receive the prize at the end. Because our prize is not simply a 
you know, victors reap a crown as he would have got in the first century in Corinth. Our prize is eternal life itself, which is far more precious than anything in this world. That we need to discipline our body, we're told. And perhaps Paul is, is hinting here at the dangers of sexual indulgence or hedonistic gratification of all our earthly desires with food and drink and material goods, just running after whatever our bodies desire. If the Christian is to run the race, they need to learn to be self-controlled, to say no to sin, to refrain from temptation in pursuit of something greater. Our heavenly goal, running towards heaven, helps us to focus now. And so even as Paul preaches the gospel to others, he doesn't neglect his own relationship with God. He works hard to keep his body under control, to keep living for the Lord Jesus, to keep resisting temptations to sin, so that he himself will not be disqualified after planting all these churches in the first century. And this is always very easy, I think, uh, in preaching to others, that we stop listening to God's word for ourselves. This is very, very subtle, actually. But your focus shifts from what God is saying to other people instead of what God is saying to you. You know, you're sitting here listening to the sun and this sun will be so good for X, Y, Z. You know, they, they would really need to hear this. And you start to forget, you start thinking, well, actually, I need to hear this, and I need to listen to this, and I need to follow this. And once, but once you stop listening to God's word for yourself, and you're only just thinking about other people, well, very quickly, you'll find yourself in temptation. Complacency leads to failure. Complacency, we I don't need to hear this anymore. Well, it can lead to disastrous consequences. And Paul doesn't want that to happen to himself. I mean, how unthinkable. The apostle to the Gentiles would miss out on, he on heaven, but Paul thinks that's a real possibility. And he is keen to make sure it doesn't happen. So that brings us to the, the second point. Having held up his own uh, example of resisting temptation, in chapter 10 he now gives a stern warning uh, against the danger of idolatry. That's the second point, the danger of idolatry. He said those who are current with the strong consciences, you know, those who thought about eating the food sacrificed to the idols was fine, they saw nothing, nothing at all wrong with this practice. It was a non-issue to them. But Paul indicates that there is a danger in associating ourselves with idol worship. And in verses 1 to 10, Paul looks to the Old Testament for examples of where God's own people fell into idolatry and faced the judgment of God. Look at verse 1. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. He's recalling here the main events of the Exodus. Uh, God saved his people out of Egypt and he led them through the wilderness uh, and through the Red Sea. Uh, he led all of them through. All of them were rescued. All of them went through the Red Sea into the wilderness. And there in the wilderness, if you remember in Exodus, God feeds them with manna from heaven. 
uh, they drink water from the rock, and so on. And notice how he interprets all those Old Testament events about the Exodus in a Christ-centered manner. He describes the crossing of the Red Sea as Israel's baptism. Now remember, baptism it symbolizes regeneration. And as we go under the waters, I mean, this sprinkling here, when you do the full immersion, right, you go under the waters, it's, it pictures your old life is dead, you're buried in the grave, if you like. And then as you come out of the waters, you are rising again to new life in Christ. And so Paul explains that as they go through the, uh, you know, the waters of the Red Sea, it was like Israel baptism. Their old life of slavery in Egypt was over, and now they had a new life as God's redeemed people. Uh, redeemed people who were heading to the promised land to be with God. See, they'd been redeemed, they'd been baptized, and it clearly didn't uh, matter how much uh, water was involved, by the way, because, of course, they weren't fully immersed in the Red Sea in the same way as the Egyptians were, right? Uh, they managed to walk through. But they'd been redeemed, they'd been baptized, and not only that, in verse 3 we read on, they all ate the same spiritual food, they all ate the, drank the same spiritual drink, they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was, was, uh, was Christ, and it's clearly talking here about the manna, that's the food that they ate, uh, the water that God caused to flow from the rock as, as Moses struck the rock, but again, Paul indicates here that that physical eating and drinking in the wilderness, it foreshadowed a greater spiritual reality. The way that Christians would feed on Christ as a source not just of physical life, but of eternal life. And you might remember what Jesus says in John 6, 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. In the same chapter he talks about how he was the bread that came down from heaven. Jesus himself is the source of spiritual life. And so Paul is trying to help us to see here the link between Israel and the Old Testament and us. And here is the point. They were saved from Egypt just like we were saved from sin. And they went through the Red Sea experiencing baptism, just like we, when we turn to Christ, experience baptism. And they ate spiritual food and drink, as we do as we, as we come to Christ in faith as the bread of life. But although all of God's Old Testament people, all Israel experienced these blessings, remember, they didn't all make it to the promised land. Verse 5, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Remember, they rebelled, and they were destroyed. Now, we'll find out why uh, in the following verses. Uh, in, six, in verse 6, Paul tells us why he's giving us this little history lesson from the Old Testament, this little you know, Bible review, if you like. And that is that God intends that we should learn from what happened to them and not make the same mistake 
ourselves. Verse 6 says, These things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Now, this is very important for us as we think about the Old Testament. All the same, the Old Testament is written for the benefit of Christians. Let me say that again. The Old Testament is written for the benefit of Christians, for you and I. We are not the kind of people just only read the New Testament because it's about Christ, but the Old Testament has nothing to do with us. The whole of the Bible is about Christ. And in fact, it's written especially for us. There are lessons in the Old Testament that we must learn from, as we see in verses 1 to 5. The Old Testament points forward to Christ in so many ways. And therefore, we can look back to the Old Testament, not only to better understand uh, the Gospel as Christ comes in fulfillment of it, but to better understand how we should live the Christian life. And the lesson that we must learn in this case is that idolatry leads to sin and judgment. You can, in one sense, experience salvation, but not reach heaven because you don't persevere to the end. You fall into temptation before you receive the prize. You are, as Paul was saying, you're left disqualified. And we see this in the parable of the sower, don't we? I remember that the seed falls on the four soils. Three of the soils begin to grow. One of them is taken away by the birds immediately, but three of them begin to grow. Only one of them, though, bears fruit at the end. Right? Two of them give up because of persecution or because they're taken away by otherworldly desires. Only one that falls on the good soil bears the harvest at the end. The point of it is this. The true Christian is the one that not only begins the Christian life, but ends the Christian life, who perseveres to the very end. Uh, Paul says the same thing, in, uh, sorry, not Paul, but uh, the writer to Hebrews says the same thing in Hebrews chapter 3. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Is the key verse, verse 14. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. You see what he's saying? True Christians are those who persevere to the end, who stay Christian till they die, or Jesus returns. And so if you don't persevere to the end, if you don't hold on to your faith till you die, or Jesus returns, then it shows you weren't really converted in the first place. You weren't truly Christians. However many Christian things you did, however many times you came to church, or whatever baptism you went through, or whatever it was, if you don't persevere to the end, you weren't a Christian in the first place. That's the point. And so Paul piles on the warnings here in verses 7 to 10. Verse 7, he says, Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, that people sat down to eat and drink and rolls up to play. He's referring to Israel building the golden calf in Exodus 
32. While Moses was up on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments, the people, if you remember, built an idol, a golden calf, and they worshipped it in sexual immorality. That's what uh, it means when it says the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to, to play. Right? They were playing cards or monopoly or something like that. It's talking about sexual immorality. And if it continues in verse 8, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. This is referring to the incident in Numbers 25, where the Israelites committed sexual immorality with the daughters of Moab, and then sacrificed to their gods, and ate and bowed down to them. And not only physical prostitution, but spiritual prostitution as well. God was very angry, and a plague killed, we're told, 23,000 of them. Verse 9, we must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. This is talking about Numbers 21, where they grumbled about the food, and God sent snakes uh, to bite them and kill them. Verse 10, nor grumble as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. This is Numbers 14 now, where they refused to enter the promised land, as all their giants were like grasshoppers to them, you know, we should, why don't you bring us out here, we should go back to Egypt, life was better back there anyway. And God was very angry. Verse 11, Paul applies all these examples again now to us. Verse 11, now these things happen to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. See what he's saying? We're meant to learn from what happened to Israel. They were saved from Egypt, but they didn't make it to the promised land, most of them. And so if we've heard the gospel and put our faith in Jesus, call ourselves Christians, we must be warned as well. We haven't made it yet. We're not in heaven right now. We haven't got the prize yet. We need to persevere. We need to avoid temptation. We need to avoid sexual immorality, grumbling. We need to avoid giving up on Christ. Because if you do any of those things, you won't get the prize. You miss out on heaven. It's not how you begin, it's how you end. So are you tempted towards idolatry, giving your heart, your worship to, to something else other than Jesus? Right now, the best up there is coming for another public holiday. Uh, so many people on the streets just now uh, you know, going to the temples and worshipping other gods. You might not be joining them this morning. But perhaps we are tempted to give worship to our ancestors when our parents asked us to do it, or to another religion, or maybe we are tempted to idolise our family, or our career, or the approval of others, or comfort, or, or anything. Uh, an idol is anything that we love, trust, that have devoted to, more than God. And if we commit idolatry, we may miss out on heaven. Are you tempted to sexual immorality? Are you addicted to pornography? Statistics say that many people are. 
Are you living in an impure relationship, an immoral relationship? So I don't know what is happening in your personal life, but I do know affairs happen. I do know that people sleep with boyfriends and girlfriends before they get married and all the rest. Be warned about sexual immorality. Or you can say, I can't Are you tempted to grumble about God's goodness or his provision in your life? Start thinking, oh, life might be better off if I wasn't a Christian. Why is he allowed all this trouble to happen in my life? Why is he not giving me all the good things that I want? Be warned about grumbling. Or you may miss out on heaven. So Paul takes us back to the Old Testament here that we may learn a sober warning. Don't think that you can play play with sin and get away with it, that you won't get burnt. You will. A whole generation of Israelites who had experienced God's saving grace perished in the wilderness. And the same thing can happen to us. Fall away from Christ, fall into sin, and miss out on heaven. Perhaps we think to ourselves, that would never be easy. You know, sure it happens to those celebrity pastors that they've been out on Facebook. Uh, maybe sure it happened to those kids from the youth group that I grew up with, or that friend in the other church. But it would never happen to me, I and mean, it would never happen to anyone from Covenant Grace Church. I've never, I've never betrayed Christ. I've never had an affair. I'd never get so bitter with church that I'd leave and never come back. I'd never do whatever it is. And if that is you, if that's what you're thinking as you listen to this sermon, Paul says in verse 12, you in particular are in grave danger. Verse 12, he says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stand take heed, lest he fall. To think that it could never happen to me is to seriously underestimate the destructive power of sin or the weakness of our human flesh. It's, it's proud. And complacency like that is the beginning of the road to failure. Because if that's what you think, you will stop fighting sin. I don't know if you uh, heard the story, I'm sure you did last year, of the uh, Paralympic uh, shot putter from Malaysia. Uh, one gold at uh, the Olympics. At least he would have uh, if he didn't turn up uh, late to the call room before the event and subsequently he was disqualified. Of course, he lost the gold medal. Uh, he lost the million ringgit reward that he would have got from the government. It was tragic, wasn't it, what happened? I'm sure he, he continues to look back to this day and think about what, what, must, what may have been. You know, if only I watched the clock and turned up five minutes earlier, how different his life would have been now. And I think we, we don't want to look back with a similar regret as we fall into grave sin and miss out on eternal life. We must beware. We must take heed 
of these examples from Israel's history before it repeats in our own lives. Because actually, God has given us all that we need to stand firm. That's what he says in verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is common, not common to men. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And here now we come to the, to the other side of the coin, if you like. So yes, the warning's real, right? There is a real possibility of falling into temptation, of falling away from Christ and losing salvation. Calvinists believe that. But the other side of the coin is, we believe in a God who is sovereign, a God who is faithful, a God who helps us to endure. In, in our fight against sin, we're, we're not on our own. We're not doing the Christian life merely in our own strength. He's given us his spirit, he's given us his word, he's given us his people and much more as well. So that we will endure. So that we will turn away from temptation. So that we will persevere to the end. That doesn't mean that we don't need to fight against sin because there's this invisible, impenetrable wall around us, so any temptation will just kind of you know bounce off us as, as if we're kind of superheroes. It doesn't work like that. But it does give us encouragement. He will see to it that his elect, his people, will listen to these warnings. They will turn away from temptation. They will persevere to the end. Perseverance of the saints, as we call it. And so Paul comes to his main application in verses 14 to 21. And that is to take the way of escape. Take the way of escape. And point three, flee idolatry. Flee idolatry. Therefore, my beloved, verse 14, flee from idolatry. Even though an idol is nothing, even though eating food sacrificed to idols is not inherently wrong, it's just food anyway, Paul is nevertheless concerned that they're far too comfortable with idolatry. But in what sense is it idolatry for them to, to, to eat this food? And he explains in these final verses, it's it's because eating, by its very nature, is a sign of fellowship. And he gives uh, two examples here from the Lord's Supper and from the Temple. So firstly, the Lord's Supper, verse 15. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread. We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. I noticed that was the catechismal question for today, based on these verses you can see. What, is, what these verses are saying are that when we eat the Lord's Supper together, it's a sign of fellowship. It's a sign of fellowship with one another and with God as well. 
he doesn't mean that the, the bread and the wine you know, literally transform into the body and blood of, of Christ. That's the heresy of Roman Catholicism called transubstantiation. That's not what he means. The bread is still bread. When you're eating the Lord's Supper, you're just eating bread. And you could have got bread yourself from the supermarket. The wine is still just wine. It hasn't gone through some you know, magical transformation because the person at the front break. But as we share in that meal, as we eat the bread, drink the wine, remembering Jesus' death, putting our faith in Jesus' death, we share in his death. We, we have a relationship with him. And because we all do it together, well, we also have fellowship with, with one another, too. We eat from the one bread, drink from the one cup. It's a sign of fellowship with the Lord and one, one another, created through the death of Christ. The second example comes from the temple, verse 18. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar. And the answer again is yes. Eating the sacrificial meat expresses fellowship. You are identifying yourself with the sacrifice. And so it's, it's, it's the same thing again. It comes to his conclusion, verse 19. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? And the answer is no, he's not contradicting everything he's just told us in the, the last couple of chapters. Yes, there are no gods but the true God. There's only one true God. Whatever's going on outside of this weekend, they're not worshipping a God that's real. The gods of other religions are not real gods. And so it doesn't matter if you ate the food that was from the meat market by the temple. But he is saying it's another thing entirely to participate in that pagan worship. You know, as you bow down to the family altar, or you participate in the religious ceremonies at the funeral, or you go and participate in whatever ceremonies is happening right now at, 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 at the pagan temple down the road. If you do that, you're no longer just eating food. You're actually engaging in worship, you're participating in the worship of that idol. In short, you're committing idolatry. And that's a very serious thing, if you understand the previous verses. You see, just because there's only one true God, and that doesn't mean that the idols people worship are harmless, or that they are spiritually neutral. He says that actually behind idol worship is demons. At first, when he says, oh, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to both be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? And so he's saying that if you participate in idol worship as you, as you, you, you eat the food or as you participate in those religious practices and whatever other way, you may, what you're actually doing is having fellowship with demons. You're participating 
in the worship of demons. And that is something that God cannot and will not allow. That's idolatry. And it provokes the Lord's anger just as much as Israel's idolatry did in the wilderness when they were destroyed. So we need to make a decisive choice in our lives as to who we worship. We must choose to worship God alone. We must draw clear boundaries so that we don't participate in the worship of other gods, whether that is the worship of our ancestors, or whether that's participating in the idolatrous worship of the, of the elements, the bread of wine in Roman Catholic churches, or whether that's attending the Hindu or the Buddhist temple, or, or giving prayers to another god, or participating in the religious rituals of, of, of our Indian or Chinese heritage, or whatever it may be. We must make a decisive decision to give our worship to God alone. Because we've seen today, idolatry is serious. And idolatry leads to destruction. And we can't think that we can just play plays and not have any consequences. Because there will be consequences. And they're very serious. So as we conclude then, will you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength through Christ, find the Spirit? And so will you take a stand and flee from all idolatry, whether that be the gods of other religions, whether that be the gods of your work, career, money, comfort, approval, success, whatever it may be, will you flee from the worship of anything other than the Lord Jesus Christ? Because we've seen today there is a real danger of falling away. And if you do, you will face the judgment of God. And it's only as we recognize that danger that we will fight the temptation and take the way of escape. Because the wonderful truth as we bring together the whole of the Bible's teaching is that a Christian who is truly elect will not just begin the Christian life. They will end it. They will persevere to the end. And God himself will see that they do. As he works in them by his spirit, to fight temptation and worship God alone. So can a Christian fall away? The answer is, don't. As you heed the warnings, you won't. Because God is faithful, he'll enable you to persevere to the end, and you'll receive the imperishable wreath of eternal our Heavenly Father, we want to thank you that you are a faithful and sovereign God. 
Thank you, Lord, that you always provide a means of escape from temptation and sin. We thank you, Lord, that we're not on our own. It's not up to simply our own inner self-control and discipline. That's the help of your spirit. And so help us, Lord, to take heed of your words so that we do flee idolatry and persevere in faith to the end. For those of us, Lord, that are feeling the, the pinch of that temptation right now in various ways, help us, Lord, to take decisive action, even today, even now, to resist it, to flee it. Help us, Lord, to love and serve Christ alone. We pray this in Jesus' name.